When I first started cooking in commercial kitchens, I was amazed by the equipment, but not quite in the way that I expected to be. The equipment was all big, all impressive, and high-powered, and all of that I had expected. What I didn't anticipate, but came to appreciate, was that the equipment was very simple. Each piece did one thing, more or less, but it did that one thing really, really well. Burners turned on instantly and got as hot as you wanted them to get very quickly. Refrigerators had strong rack shelving and lots of space, and they stayed cold. And the people using this simple equipment in kitchens from Vancouver to Las Vegas were the most skilled I'd ever seen. So why is it that so much of the cooking equipment I see for homes is so complicated? Why do things have seven functions and do it all? I'm still not sure, but I did have a fun discussion recently on these differences and just how the pros use simple equipment to work around some incredibly challenging situations. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome. It is great to be with you here on the Chef Demoni Podcast. Season 5 is, in fact, underway, and here we are with the first full episode of this season. As you may know, and if not, here you go, Chef Demoni is a podcast about food. I interview a range of guests, usually chefs and food-loving lawyers, and I focus on those groups because I've done both of those jobs over the years, so it just happens that I know a lot of chefs and a lot of lawyers. After I stopped cooking professionally a few years ago and returned to the practice of law, I started this podcast to stay connected to the culinary world. And there's the story. A little housekeeping before today's interview. Everyone loves a little housekeeping. As you may have noticed, episode scheduling is a little more erratic this season. That is going to continue. This season, I'm going to put out episodes on a more random schedule. The upshot is that I will bring you some really fun interviews and some fun snapshots as they are available. And speaking of fun interviews, do you remember the legal case we talked about on episode 48? My guest on that show was Dan Coles, a lawyer in Vancouver who represents a restaurant called Fett's, from which 242 bottles of scotch whiskey were seized one morning by inspectors from the BC Liquor Control and Licensing Branch, which I think now is called the Liquor and Cannabis Regulation Branch. In any event, after that happened, Dan brought proceedings before the branch on behalf of his client, the restaurant. Now, this story gets a little complicated, but the good news is that for our purposes, this is just a story. Not legal advice, not legal analysis, it's a story and a good one. So after the seizure, Dan and his client received two decisions from liquor branch delegates that upheld the seizure of the whiskey and also imposed a fine against Fetz. And just to give you a sense, the first delegate's decision was 64 pages long and the second a lean 28 pages. As Dan mentioned on episode 48, he and his client were waiting for their day in court for judicial review of the latest delegate's decision. They wanted to make their case to a judge that the delegates had gotten it wrong, and that the seizure should not be upheld. Within the judicial review proceeding, and if you're keeping score, that's the court proceeding, which followed both of the administrative or branch or delegate proceedings, Dan and his client had brought an application for production of documents. Basically, they wanted to see more records from the liquor branch. Well, that application, and lawyers call these interlocutory applications because they are in the middle of overall cases, that interlocutory application was dismissed in April of 2021, which means that Dan and his client did not get the records, but the overall proceeding, so not the interlocutory proceeding, 
not the branch of the delegate proceedings, but the whole of the petition for judicial review in court, that proceeded for two days in December of 2021, so quite recently. And wow, I'll just pause to note here that I'm tired from describing the history of these proceedings. But in any case, the decision, the court decision, is reserved, which just means that the judge has gone away to think about it and to work on a written decision, and hopefully the court will release its decision soon. I'm really happy to let you know that Dan will be coming back onto Chefdemony after the decision comes down, so look for an update soon on the latest in the Whiskey Seizure saga. Okay, on to today's talk. This interview comes to you from Keats Island, just outside Vancouver, British Columbia. Oh, and there are some bad words ahead. Chefs will be chefs, be advised. I joined the team from Vancouver Private Dining, and that was, on that evening, Chef Evan Elman and Chef Warren Chow, for a really fun service for some very happy wedding guests. This was the first time I had done a proper service, and the first time I'd done a catering gig in a long, long time. We put up a plated dinner for 48 guests, along with some surprise younger guests, as you'll hear. And after we wrapped up service and had scrubbed the kitchen, Warren, Evan, and I had a drink and a chat while standing around in the kitchen on Keats Island. That is the interview that you're going to hear in a moment. We talked about their cooking experiences before catering and also some of the environments that they now work in, mostly high-end residential kitchens. And that is where you'll hear a discussion on simple equipment, versus the complicated stuff. There are some more complicated pieces that chefs use. Evan mentions an induction element called the Control Freak, as well as sous vide equipment and a very fancy blender called a Thermomix. But by and large, professional chefs seem to like simple, powerful, reliable equipment. There are some great stories coming up about overcoming challenges by innovating by using this simple equipment. Keep an ear open for Warren's story about the peach galette, and how that dessert had to become something else entirely. I love this attitude among chefs, which I think can be summed up with, the show must go on. And Evan and Warren have been rewarded for keeping the show going in their catering business. You're going to hear how they've been privy to some really amazing human experiences, from marriage proposals to 50th wedding anniversaries. All right, let's get to it now. Here we go to the kitchen at Keats Camp on Keats Island, just outside Vancouver, British Columbia. Chef and Chef Evan Elman, Warren Chow, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me here with you today on Keats Island, doing a great catering gig, 48 guest plated menu. Uh, This is the first time I've been involved in actual service in a long, long time. So thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me spend the day with you guys. Thanks for being on Chef-Demony. Of course. Thanks for having us. Just to set set the stage here, we are in a commercial kitchen. Uh, on Keats Island at Keats Camp. We just finished plating service, scrubbed everything down, just cracked a beer, and we are getting into whatever we're about to get into. Oh, <laughs> whatever. And somebody's ringing the bell. Yeah, we're, and, uh, and we've we're, officially commenced. We're off and running. Yeah, this is great. I got to say, I was not anticipating this large a kitchen. Evan, maybe tell us about some of your typical gigs, because I think you're more, from our conversation earlier, you're more in residential, like high-end residential kitchens. How did tonight compare to uh, to most of your work? Yeah, I'd say that uh, predominantly, as you just mentioned, we uh, were in clients' residential homes. We also do corporate uh, corporate gigs as well. 
overall though, residential is typically what we're in. I mean, I, I would say that just based on our price point, just based on what we offer as private chefs, uh, we tend to be in more high-end kitchens. But I mean, you know, I think that for Warren and I, where we started, we're the most comfortable in a commercial kitchen. You know, using somebody's like half a million dollar renovated kitchen with like steam ovens that we need to look online for tutorials on how to use. Like it's, you know, stuff in kitchens is designed for common sense. Whereas like stuff in people's fancy kitchens are quite complicated. I've noticed that as well. Uh, we just did a kitchen renovation. I was telling you guys a little bit about it earlier. And I'm, I'm always amazed when I go into these super high-end residential kitchens because the the equipment is way more complicated, right? There's steam ovens. There's like iPads on the interfaces. And I think I'm right. Real chefs like the two of you guys, probably more comfortable with simple equipment that just works really well, right? Like burners that get really hot, ovens that work. I would say so. And like, I think that like as about as technologically advanced as we get, besides like a control freak or sous vides or like a, what's uh what's that? What's that blender? A Thermomix? Yeah, um, a Thermomix. Like, I, or I've like been, a rationale. Yeah, I've been in clients' homes where like, you know, they show me their oven. There's like 50 different modes. Yes. And... You, you just they, want they some tell, meat. They, they, yeah, they tell me, oh, I only use the bake uh, uh, bake function on this oven. Right. I'm like, wow, okay. And they're asking me to show them how to use the, the combination function, the steam function, the, the proofing function. I'm like, I don't even use this stuff. You know right. what I mean? Like if right. I'm in a commercial kitchen, we have full-size proofers. We have full-size steamers. We have full-size, you right. know. You've got dedicated equipment. Exactly. And these, these uh, tenon ones, you know, they kind of, do the job okay, I guess, for a home cook, for what you need. Yeah. But I feel like it's a little more gimmicky than anything. Then, yeah, than it, than it actually needs to yeah. be. Warren, maybe tell us, what is your background? I know you were the executive chef at Juniper in Vancouver. Um, maybe pick another, uh, like, tell us about that. A couple of highlights from your restaurant career. And then, then I'm interested in why you made the transition into catering. Sure. I started cooking. Well, I knew I wanted to cook when I was five. So the first chance I got, I, I stepped foot into a restaurant. Being a chain restaurant, uh, I started washing dishes, and I was fascinated by all the cooks and chefs working on the line, and, and I wanted to be a part of it. So I would stay after hours and kind of just learn from them and absorbed as much as I could. And then when one day one of the apps guys called in sick, a uh, chef looked at me and said, hey, Warren, you know, how to, you know how to do calamari, you know how to do wings, you know how to do this throw together a few salads. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So he threw me online and uh, I was hooked. So I did that for about three years. And then I did a program called ACIT when I was still in my grade 12 year before graduating. It's an advanced placement program uh, offered by the Burnaby School Board, right. Burnaby School District, yeah. uh, where I grew up. And so you did half year of, or sorry, your half day of high school. And then your uh, afternoon, you would do your first year culinary course. So you really have been in this for uh, since since early days, early early, early days. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. And then from then, um, I got my foot in the door at the Pear Tree Restaurant, uh, apprenticing under Scott, super talented chef. Um, he represented Canada at the Boku's door. At the Boku's door. Yeah. yeah. And placed fourth or something. Yeah, he, didn't placed, he? He, placed he placed really high. high. So yeah, that was a very eye-opening experience where you know working in a chain restaurant at that young and they're offering you a sous chef position by the time you're out of high school you're like oh wow like i'm i'm hot stuff like i, I know sure. everything and then 
stepping into a real kitchen like like Scott's, it was uh, it was very humbling. That's where, kind of where, where did you start? Were you working Garde Manger when you first started, or how, how so did you start at Pear Tree? At the at, at the Pear Tree, there was a there was a station called the Corner. Okay, that's a glor- I'm, I'm that's a glorified <laughs> dishwashing position. Got it. And the only things you cooked for service were the baking risotto for the scallop appetizer, and then the lamb or the uh, roasted pear risotto for the lamb at, or main. Got it. So you got so you great got, at risotto. Yeah. Yes, okay. that's a um, giving you risotto under a salad <laughs> is pretty impressive. I would say. I mean, um, I feel like a well, lot goes into a risotto because risottos ha- are so temperamental. Yeah. Everyone has to be perfect by the time it goes up to the pass. Right, right. Right before it hits the plate, it needs to be just runny enough, yeah. but not too runny. But not too runny, but not, yeah. but not seizing. Exactly. So, um, and that really got you in tune with kind of all of your senses. You know, like of course. your rice had to be cooked perfectly, had to be seasoned perfectly. Yeah. Your portioning had to be perfect. So that kind of instilled the stepping stones into it's true. him trusting you with other products. Right. If you fucked up rice, right. that's yeah. cheap. You fuck yeah. up a piece of steelhead yeah. or a lamb shank, Smart. that's a little uh, more costly. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot more expensive. That's so interesting. It, you know what the, it pops into my head because I've spent a little bit of time in one of Thomas Keller's kitchen and you know, there's the green tape story, right? Where everything has to be cut perfectly. And, uh-huh. and I didn't know the, that. Yeah, the We theory, met Thomas Keller a month ago. I saw that yeah. on your Instagram, right? At French Laundry, right? Uh, we were at one of his pop-ups. Uh, Regis, Regis, Regis Nova. Okay, Nova. so it's a new, I don't know, it's it's a new it, caviar lounge. Okay, is yeah. it in Yonville, like Saint Yeah, Mary? it's in Yonville. Okay. It's uh, yeah. like three blocks down from yeah. French Laundry. Yeah. yeah, everything's so close there. It right? is. Like, it's <laughs> a cool little little village. <laughs> it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's a whole new world down there. It's, yeah. it's where were quite you unique. At, uh, where where'd you work with Keller? We, well, I can't say I worked with Keller, but I did a bunch of stages at uh, Bouchon in Las Vegas. Oh, cool! Oh, and nice. so, yeah, nice. which was super great. And the and the green tape that stands out. This is what what I took away from it. You know, when you go to label something, yeah, they don't rip the tape; they cut the tape, so it's very precise. It's not on an angle. It's it's uh, at 180 degrees. The the printing obviously very legible. And the theory is, as I understand it, that. If you do that right, you're going to do the next thing right. right? Exactly. Like, you, like don't, exactly. don't rush on the tape. Don't do a shitty job on the tape. You're going to do the, the right thing with the rice. You're going to do the right thing with the lamb shank and on yeah. you go. Exactly. No, yeah. no shortcuts. You build your foundation. You build your base. You're going to carry that through everything you do. Yeah. Whether it be through prep, organization, cooking, plating, uh, serve everything. So... Yep. It's, it's it's the foundation. So Warren, take us from Pear Tree to what what was next, and then Juniper, and then uh, um, Vancouver actually, Private Dining. So yeah, uh, after Pear Tree, I, I was there for almost three years. Did a bunch of competitions with my time there, junior competitions with the BC Chefs Association, uh, team competitions, and I remember when I wanted to enter my first competition at seventeen. <laughs> so uh, you were so young. Scott looked at me. He was like, "All of my apprentices that have entered this competition." have come out with gold. Oh, wow. So no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. 24 competitors. And I think I was the youngest by four years. And I came out with gold. So Nicely done. Really? Up- upheld that record. Yeah. So what after, was the competition? That, it was the BC Chef's Hot Competition. Sick. On stage. It was at the BC Food Expo. Wow. Yeah. And then after that, I wanted to see more volume cooking. So Pear Tree was a very small 25 seat fine dining fine restaurant dining experience yeah so i wanted to kind of see volume banquets weddings 
And then I got in touch with uh, Chef Dan Craig, who was the executive chef at uh, the Delta Burnaby at the time. Had a stage with him and then uh, landed a second cook position with him. Um, and then I worked at the Delta Burnaby for about three years and then moved my way up. And then I moved to Kelowna and they opened a first cook position for me at the Delta Grand Okanagan. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I did a season there and then I transitioned to... I mean, if I'm in Kelowna, I want a taste of uh, wine country, right? So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I made my way to Mission Hill, worked two seasons at Mission Hill as their chef de partie, and then came back to Vancouver, and then landed the sous chef job at uh, Juniper. Okay. And but before, before you carry on with Juniper, tell us a little bit more about the Okanagan. I'm curious, like, what was that like? Was it was just massively busy in the summer and then it did it drop right oh, off to- or yeah totally it was yeah. so seasonal between May and September so May long and then Labor Day yep screaming busy screaming busy every day we did i think at least 120 130 covers for dinner uh wow. lunch was 250 covers wow. but then once uh, Once Labor Day, Labor Day hits. hits, everybody's back at school, everybody's back at work, and then the, the it's so it's seasonal. It's a seasonal contract, and everybody everybody's contract ends. Pretty much all hospitality workers either move to Big White and work the ski season, okay, right, or the or heli lodges, go or go on EI, or they're trying to work three part time jobs to get by, right? Yeah, so just to make it through to the next season. The, yeah, yeah, so yeah. It was it was tough. It was tough, but luckily the hotel took me back. Uh, for the winter seasons, yeah, and then I did wineries for the summer seasons. Summers, nice. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like a good mix. And then working yeah. at the winery it was it was very interesting because ultimately you were a winery first and a restaurant second. So yeah. you had to kind of highlight their wine portfolios and their tiers of wine. So normally at a restaurant, the chef would create the dish. You'd have a sommelier who pair the wines, pair the right. wines with the food. Yeah, but this was completely opposite. The reverse. You needed yeah. to learn your wine so well where you could create dishes to highlight the wines. Right, right. Well, that's that strikes me mm-hmm. as kind of fun. Challenging, but super fun, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. What was the supply chain like in the Okanagan? Like, And I am guess, yeah, it must have been amazing because you're cooking, obviously, in peak season, and or at least coming into peak season, August, September. The produce must have been amazing. Right, so all the fresh produce, herbs, farms. The tomatoes, Millen's tomatoes. Everything <laughs> is right in your backyard, Yeah, which is crazy. And then, so we had a 12-course tasting menu at Mission Hill, and we boasted ourselves on everything being local, you know, within 100 miles of the winery, if not grown on the property, because we had, um, we had gardeners who took care of the, the vines, and whatever we wanted to see next season, a couple seasons down the road, they would plant those seeds a couple of years in before, and then, right, and then they'd be ready to go in a couple of years. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so we, we boasted ourselves on that. And then I remember on one tasting menu, one, one of the courses, it was a honeydew and a watermelon kind of salad with prosciutto. I'm like, where are we getting this honeydew and watermelon from? Like, I thought yeah. we were supposed to be local. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they There's said, oh, a, far, a little farm down in Soyuz. Just, uh, right, because it's hot enough. It's hot <laughs> enough to grow watermelon and yeah. honeydew. I'm like, wow. Amazing, so that right? Was, that was very eye-opening. That was a very cool experience. No so, doubt. Okay, now take us into Juniper. So now you're in Chinatown in Vancouver mm-hmm. and uh, sous chef and eventually the exec chef. Right, so it was a 120-seat restaurant and bar. We hyper-focused on gins. Yes. You know, yeah. Hence the name yeah. Juniper. Yeah. We had 105 yeah. gins behind the bar, uh, <laughs> wow. which was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very impressive. And I think the, the, the concept of the restaurant was um, we wanted to provide 
you know, great cocktails, but also have the food to match. And so I took over a sous chef when I came back to Vancouver. First sous chef position ever, you know, two months in, my chef gives us notice. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, cool. Oh. Like, that's fine. Like, you guys are going to hire somebody else, right? Uh, yes, we are. And you know him really well. Yeah. yeah. And the, the GM pulled me aside. The GM pulled me aside. And uh, he's like, you know, we trust you. We've seen enough in the two months you've been here. We trust you. And we want to give you a shot. Wow. And that was when I was 25. Okay. <laughs> well, given the age you start, given the age you started at, you had a lot of uh, a lot of experience behind you at twenty five, right? Right. Right. Uh, yes. So, like, I had a lot of cooking experience. Right. Very little yeah. management manager, yeah. management experience. Fair enough. To say it was a learning curve, I would probably say it was like a <laughs> learning right angle. Maybe. Like, right. I think that I think that both of us can attest that uh, managing people is without a doubt the most difficult part of running a kitchen. Of the job. Yeah. Oh my god. Like you just gotta like it's just it's a lot. And when you're a chef, you're it's not like any other job. You're not just their manager. You're their manager. You're their confidant. You're their Oh my God! You're like their psychologist. Sure, you're their freaking HR Mar- department. Mar- their marriage counselor. Yeah. Their, oh yeah. my God! Yeah. Exactly. And then you're also their leader for everything in, to do with kitchens. Yeah. Like everything to do with cooking. You're their, you know, mentor. Your role model. You just got to be so many different hats for one person, and it's just exhausting. Fair enough. And Warren, is that part of like what, what led you to make the? make the switch from the restaurant world to the for the record that's the, that's more so like in actual like commercial kitchens yeah right okay okay and we're yeah. gonna get into the into the catering yeah. scene here yeah. yeah so what's the what was the incentive let's start with you warren what was the incentive well how long did you spend as the exec at juniper and then what made you or what what interested you or what compelled you to make the switch to to the private scene um i actually get that question a lot i was the exec chef for about two years and then the lease was coming up on the restaurant and the owners decided not to not to renew and they got a pretty good offer on the table and sold the restaurant. Got it. So kind of during that time, coincidentally, Evan, he was transitioning from Evan Ellen private dining to Vancouver private dining. So he was expanding. And I kind of thought to myself, I'm like, hey, I kind of want to switch from being a restaurant cook, yeah. being a restaurant chef. You know, I've been doing this for about 14 years. All I've known is restaurant dinner service kind of Pacific Northwest cuisine, it's time to switch it up a little bit. So I reached out to Evan and uh, we had a co- we sat down for coffee and the rest is history. So I kind of did... did well, it sounds like it is. It I, is. Yeah, it is. It, in a way it is, yeah, for sure. Like it was, yeah, there was, uh, there was a lot of synergy between Warren and I and like, you know, just meeting somebody that's so... Like everyone that we bring around at this point is handpicked by Warren or myself. And it's people who are passionate. Like we don't want life or line cooks or people who don't give a shit about their food. Like we want people, we handpick a specific type of person and it's not a guy. It's not a girl. It's just like a specific drive and personality that we like to bring around and people who are hungry. They're hungry. They're down to work. They're down to try new things. They want to try new cuisines. Like they're just, they're like the new school of cook with like a bit of old school training. And, uh, and we really like that. Like one of our guys, this dude, Kiernan, he worked at Shape and East. Yeah. You know what I mean? That was the first restaurant he worked at. 
And like in my mind, I'm like, that's so cool. Like you worked for Alice Waters. It's your, no your first right? job. Yeah. Like that's so <laughs> cool, you know? And like that sort of stuff like really carries with you. And it's, and it's similar to Warren's circumstance as well. Like he worked for a super old school cook, which is Scott Yeager. And, you know, learned that sort of regiment being able to cook high-end cuisine. And so those are the type of people that we try to bring around. What does the private dining context give you that the restaurant scene doesn't? I think you started to talk about this a little bit, Evan. Like, what what can you do with your staff in the private scene that is maybe better than what you can do in the restaurant scene? Or do you see differences? I think that, like, in in general, there's typically a better work-life balance. I don't know. Can you attest to that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I just uh, want to make sure you know. that's true before I say that. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hope so. You know, at a restaurant, even when you're a line cook, you're working 12-hour days. Sure. As a sous chef, you're working 12-plus hour days. As the exec chef, you're working 14, 15, 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week. Yeah. It just never ends. It never ends. Where with private dining, I get two days off a week consecutively. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that are actual days that off. That are actual days off. The only days that I'm working evenings now are the days of events, which yeah. are two or three days a week. Yeah. The other days are prep days where, you know, there's still a push, sure. but there's seven or eight hours yeah. at right. most. Yeah. yeah. And I get to leave the kitchen at five o'clock. Right. Yeah. Right. And actually have an evening. And have yeah. an evening. Go so, with your friends, go on a date, whatever, you know? So that's been, nice. that's been the biggest difference. And I'd say also being in those intimate moments with your guests Yes. Where in a restaurant, you're, you're behind the walls, you're in the kitchen. Yes, sometimes there's, there are open kitchens, but you're not talking to them. You're not getting to know them on a personal level. You're not there, you know, celebrating their special occasion with them. Right. So that's right. probably the, the, like, yeah. I, we literally just like we, 20 minutes ago just right. went we were, out. We were out to go with talk the wedding guests, to right? The, the, the pregnant bride of the night and we were talking about her her pregnancy and we were talking about if she enjoyed the food and she was raving about it and that her guests enjoyed it and it's like you know and not that it's like an ego stroke but it's like in the same vein of like being an artist being a chef it's like you know like we put so much work and so much dedication and so much effort into this into something that disappears in 10 minutes. So it's like being able to at least get that one minute of just being like, that was fantastic. Thank you for working your ass off to make this happen. That feels gratifying. And that's so nice because you don't get that in a kitchen. You're like, I worked my ass off and I heard it was good. Yeah. It's a little, (laughs) it's a little different when, you know, a server after a busy Saturday night, a server goes, comes back to you at the restaurant and goes, hey, table 30 really enjoyed their steak or yeah. whatnot, right? Because they're table they're, 30. They're not Brett and Martha. There's right. still that one one <laughs> step of like... Yeah, there's one degree of separation. One degree of, yeah, separation between yeah. you and the actual client. I mean, right. at that point, you like, of course you care, but like, it's not the same. You know, table 30 doesn't feel the same as... As walking that, out and talking to the bride. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of course. Well, the other thing that I noticed tonight is that you collaborate with other people, right? Like it was the bride's best friend who was kind of working the past. Right. Like she and she had some experience, I think, from the four seasons in Vancouver. Yeah. She clearly knew what she was doing. Oh, yeah. And then all of the servers were these great high school kids who yeah. I guess are friends of the happy couple. And yeah. it was just like this super team that came together yeah. and will never be seen again. But it's, you just yeah. don't have those experiences in a restaurant. It's like right? it's truly like this team of merch mercenaries like right. <laughs> are just absolute like mostly especially on our team and i always love thinking of it like that i don't know maybe just because it's cool in my head but like we're just like 
stone cold like assassin chefs and we like come together and form like Voltron and just like just like crush it. It's so <laughs> fucking awesome. Oh man. And it's just, crazy because like you we all dance very well together. Which which of course you have to learn how to do. Um, exactly. Now as I told you before we started recording, I want to get into some stories, but we'll transition gently. So here's one thing that I always find interesting, and I think that a lot of people don't realize, people who haven't worked in the, on this side of the past don't realize how fluid and nimble and adaptable you have to be. So one example I'll give ton- from tonight's experience was, and it was a surprise to all three of us, somebody showed up, walked in through the back door of the kitchen with some chicken fingers and fries and oh, yeah. said, Who's, uh, who do I talk to about cooking the kids' meals? And the kids' meals were an absolute surprise to us, right? Yeah. So, and, of course, we adapted and, and uh, cooked them off and plated them out. No, they went and the kids were happy. There were 12 but of them. There were, there were 12 kids. There were 12 <laughs> kids. And we just, I never heard about this until tonight. Right. And that happens all the time, right? There's always something that's different. Or you get a late-breaking gluten allergy or a... You know, it really happened right. tonight. We had like we we're positive that we had one celiac, up oh, two celiacs. Decided right. to, this guy decided right. he didn't like gluten today. So, so how how do you roll with that? And what what have you learned in the catering business about how to roll with those challenges? I'll let you take this um, one, pal. Yeah, I think I think this <laughs> perfectly segues into uh, the experience I, I ran into just last weekend, actually. But I think for us, we're all so well versed. And we all have such a strong skill set that that we can kind of make anything happen. We are like magicians in in some way, in some in some capacity. Yeah, where we just the show must go on. Of course, right, right. Yeah, you got to find a way. And with private right. dining, like, sorry, not to cut you off, but like private dining, it's like, yes, it is being an extremely nimble cook. Yes, it is being extremely experienced and using all these all this experience that we have to make this work. Half of this is also entertainment, though. You know what I mean? Like you're in somebody's home. You're right there. Like there is no getting around being a crappy personality. Like you have to be there. And if they're like, hey, uh, we have two vegetarians. You don't say, well, you can <laughs> kindly you go fuck yourself. Before. Like you say, listen, like, you know, oh, okay. Yeah, no worries. We'll make it happen. We'll make it work. It's all good. And we're not the house of yes necessarily, but like we'll make it work. We'll do, the, we'll we'll do, do our it. best to accommodate will, you. Of you know? course. Yeah. Because as Warren just said, the show must go on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a private chef and going to someone's home, you're bringing your prep and your mise and everything you have with you. It's not like you drop a steak or you burn a fit, you burn a piece of talibut. You can run into the fridge and, and get make another else. one. Yeah. What you have is what you have. So We're there's actually like the, the, the highest form the, of cook. The room, of, <laughs> the room for error is very, 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 very little. Um, so, yeah, I was about to say, you know, last weekend, me and uh, my team of... Two, two other chefs, we were going to go cater a wedding for 21 people. Three, co- or no, it was five courses. Very straightforward. Two courses were cold. It was a carpaccio and a salad. And then we had a, a steamed course, which was very simple, very easy to execute. Our main course was a pasta course. Dessert was brulee. And dessert was creme brulee. On paper, 21 people, three chefs. Three we chefs had a server with us. You could us. have had two we chefs had, and been okay. We had a commercial kitchen just like this one we're sitting in, the one we're sitting in today. On paper, it should have been dead easy. There were nope. things popping up left, right, and center. <laughs> we were told there was only one, one wheat allergy, one dairy allergy. Perfect. We accommodated for that. Through the email thread, 
I read somewhere there was two vegetarians, but Evan was talking to the client directly. He was positive that there wasn't any vegetarians. Anyways, I get there. We find out that they're using the word vegetarian and allergies interchangeably. Oh. So I'm like, okay, okay. there's no actual vegetarians. Right. There's just allergies. But then the morning of, the bride was like, can I add an extra guest? Evan <laughs> said, no, I'm sorry. Everything has been accounted for. Everything's prepped, counted. We've already invoiced you. She brings her anyways. <laughs> Or of course. There's a 22nd guest. It's her mother, the bride's right. oh. mother. <laughs> wow. Right. Wow. How do you forget your mom? Yeah. So, you know, for me, I always bring an extra portion or two just for exactly situations like that. Yes. That was fine. Okay. And uh, came dessert time. The dessert, like we said, was creme brulee. Yeah. One dairy allergy. No problem. I accounted for that. We made a peach galette with uh, puff pastry and... But, uh, but the puff pastry was only, we put shortening in it, so it was dairy-free, uh, made a crumble and everything with the apricot glaze. And uh, we get to the kitchen, and we realized that the gas wasn't turned on for the ovens. Okay. We only had like, the stovetop and wow. like, an electric like, warming box. Okay, like at the source, there's just no gas coming yeah, in. They, they yeah, they cut off the gas for the ovens, because that... Apparently, that, that kitchen doesn't really get used that often, only for special events or if people book it out. They don't have a food program or food service there. So the kitchen was very bare bones in terms of what, was, what equipment was working yeah. and what they had in their dry storage, what they had in their walk-in. They had nothing almost, like maybe a couple of creamers for coffee. That's right. It. Wow. So I'm like, okay, how are we going to bake this galette? Like, we have no oven. Found a couple cast iron pans. Cool. Put one on the stove. And tried to build kind of like a build an oven. like an oven on the stove. Yeah, and I turned an upside down little sheet pan on on the bottom to raise the galette up a little bit. So the bo- I knew the bottom was going to get super hot. Yeah. I didn't want the bottom to burn. Put the lid on. After about seven eight minutes, it started to get dark, but the top was still very raw. Yeah, kind of let it go a little longer, and the bottom was scorched. Yeah, the bottom was scorched. My only dairy free dessert, dairy free dessert is now scorched is garbage. And we're like, shit, <laughs> fuck. Like, we're, we're plating dessert right now. Yeah, yeah. The laser going out. What the hell do we do? We're running around this kitchen trying to find something to make a dessert with. Sure. Make a dairy-free <laughs> dessert with. And uh, running around, running around, don't find anything. Like, we're like, oh, crap, what are we going to do? We're, like, debating serving raw fruit. But luckily, my sous chef, she found a bag of croutons. croutons like bread croutons and luckily somehow some way they were plain <laughs> croutons they weren't okay. garlic croutons they weren't whatever yeah, they were yeah. plain croutons. croutons i'm like awesome i found some soy milk for their creamer <laughs> yep from their coffee right station from the walk in the one i thing took in the that walk-in. i warmed it up i added some sugar that we had added a little bit of that apricot glaze that we had I rehydrated the breadcrumbs and made like an aluminate like bread pudding. We brought one egg, one <laughs> egg, because we were going to do an egg wash for this galette. Right. Yes. So I cracked the egg in there. We put a lid on this pot, let this bread pudding steam and cook. And then I took the cast iron and then I flipped that upside down into the cast iron and gave it a nice little sear. Yep. Save the peaches from that galette because the peaches were fine. Placed it on top, sprinkled some sugar on there, brulee it, 
they didn't know they didn't know the difference know so it was, it was like it a was cooking gorgeous. it was like a cooking competition <laughs> like oh black God, box kind of like it was it was it was actually really fun to do yeah no yeah, kidding yeah. that must have felt great right yeah like, yeah like, that you pulled that together mm-hmm. holy moly so yeah that's yeah. that's kind of what how how we have to dab that's how we have to dab that's how we we take what's in front of us and make it work and, and make it work did you take a picture of it I did not. Oh, I did not. No, we, okay. were, we were already so behind. Yeah, we needed need yeah, that out yesterday. <laughs> fair enough. All right, Chef Evan, you, there's got to be uh, something. There's got to be a story. Come on. <laughs> what oh, we, yeah. There's, know, what I mean, there's a lot it? of stories. Are they all appropriate for this? Yeah, for, I don't think for so. For radio? Yeah. yeah. That's okay. Uh, well, so, yeah, yeah, I'll just like give some. some yeah, I, I worked on a cruise ship once, and we went down to Antarctica, and... Um, a lot of it, we went through the Drake Passage, which is between Ushuaia, the tip of South America, and the Antarctic Peninsula. And there was just multiple times where we would, um, we would just be going up and down these like 10 meter seas and have to just adjust the cooking in 10 meter seas. And uh, it was crazy. Yeah. We had this thing called a gimbal frying pan that essentially oh, yeah. like, yeah, they would, they would have to like adjust their, like the equilibrium would just adjust dependent on you know where you are in the wave in the wave cycle it was insane and so we'd be like frying stuff in there like at the same time this was like a russian research vessel turned boutique cruise ship for the summer in antarctica it was insane man there was like it was like russian you know staff on there and they were just oh my god they were so crazy like just some sociopathic russian cooks that like (laughs) lived in antarctica for years like they just <laughs> lived on this boat they didn't go anywhere else man they like w- live there and now now they're your colleagues and now they're my <laughs> colleagues so like and they like make me like all sorts of russian food that all tasted the same and yeah i don't know man like it was just it was just so wild and so yeah i just became like this like just like animal i, I don't know man like i've been in a lot of situations cooking wise where I just, you know, whatever, like I'm working ungodly hours, running on no sleep, especially like with the Antarctica thing, just like I would wake up at six o'clock in the morning, go do breakfast service, go do lunch service, sleep for two hours, get off work. And it would be like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. Man, it was just so crazy. Like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't even like, a, I can't even go like, it's just, it, it was so crazy like the whole situation and on top of that i was getting paid like a you know x amount every day which i thought like my 22 23 year old self at the time thought that i was just like i'm like i'm rich i'm getting paid 200 dollars a day this is insane and i was like <laughs> and, and nowhere to spend yeah, it <laughs> yeah exactly and i was like oh my god and i was like and looking back at the situation it's just like i just felt so silly but anyways you know well, I came back. I I started working at Hawksworth with that same mentality, just like hella hours. I got to Hawksworth like four o'clock in the morning at one point, like working so much. But it's cool though, man. Like I had a I had a great time uh, in my career. Are you happier now? <sighs> yeah, doing what for you're sure. Doing? Yeah. I I kind of like you know stopped just taking all these hours and started focusing on my craft a little bit more and like really paying attention to what I did. Uh, I became an executive chef for dinner in the sky Canada, which was really cool. It's a bit of a like corporate gig, if you will. Yeah, it was really cool. And I, you know, got a staff, like a team of like 10 or so people, people who still actually work for me today. Some of them, uh, who I was super close with. And yeah, it's, it seems like I've done like land 
air, sea, <laughs> like I've done it all, man. And like, yeah. just like the, I love the logistical challenge of it. Like searing a steak has just never been like, wow, this is so difficult. This is so challenging. Like I just need to do something that is a little bit more throwing myself out there. And I mean, starting a business is definitely that I own like three businesses or something. So it's, right. uh, it's all challenging. Mm-hmm. It's super fun. But let's go with, let's go. Yeah, I'm sure it's challenging. Let's go with geography because we're right. standing on Keats Island right. now. And I know that you and your family have very, very recently moved to Seashell. How is, I know things are just getting up and running on the Sunshine Coast, but how is that looking for you? You're now, you've now got the coast and you've yeah. got uh, Warren in Vancouver. Yeah, I mean, so I got like seven full-time staff in Vancouver. Warren's at the helm there. I, I mean, personally, cheers, cheers, boys, cheers. Getting back into cooking. So after dinner in the sky, I just like, it, it happened so organically. Like I had some client just, uh, that was up on the lift with me and be like, um, this is my first client. And she said, Hey, can you come and, uh, cook something similar? Cause like people love the food up there. It's like, yeah, can you come cook something similar at my house for my 40th birthday? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I was like, I had absolutely no idea how to price the thing. I had no idea. And, uh, yeah. So anyways, I did that dinner. And then things just like grew organically. And I was like, I can't do this by myself. And now this has gone from literally as of now, we've had to like completely start putting in systems and start putting in, yeah, training manuals. And yeah, you got to have systems. as you Exactly. Because like shit is starting to fall wayside and things get looked over. And it's not because of the staff because they're all super competent. It's because I don't actually have systems in place because I just grew this organically as a private chef. And so anyways, yeah, but I mean, the future is crazy bright. We have created something so beautiful, just allowing and like facilitating these like fine dining experiences for people's most intimate moments. It's special, man. It's really special. I've been at like people's like 50th anniversaries, having tears come down my eye, just watching their like, this is our relationship over the past 50 years. I swear to God, like I started crying. I was like, yeah, I've had, like, I've had a like couple the, like drop down, like the guy dropped down on one knee. Oh, you wow. Know, before I, I played at their dessert course. Yeah. Right. I was it's literally like hiding first, behind uh, hiding the with... fridge door. Like, <laughs> watching oh my the, God, watching the please proposal. say yes, please say yes. Yeah. Because if she says no, it's going to be so awkward. Oh, I still have yeah. to serve dessert. It's like the first scene of Up, man. You know, yep. the first scene of that movie Up, like, Half of our yeah. dinners, you're just like, oh my god, <laughs> it's just so like it's so sappy and crazy, but it's like it's yeah, true. And, no, like, it is. It's great. Well, I I got engaged at Bouchon in Las Vegas, really? and friends of mine in the kitchen there putting this amazing meal for us. And of course, my now wife didn't know exactly what was going on, but they they walked us into a private dining from the main restaurant into a private dining room for dessert. And uh, my friend Chef Daniel Ontiveros, he was he was cooking that, and I just did this amazing job. And he he walked us into this private room, and he said <laughs> he said, uh, "Okay, I'm going to leave you guys alone now." <laughs> and he, oh my god! <laughs> he turned Classic. around and bolted. And then I popped the question, and then our waiter was in the hallway, kind oh of peering god. peering around the window, right? So yeah, so funny. Yeah, no, it was just it was just wonderful. Well, so, yeah. we, we, we've got a we've got a water like, taxi to catch here soon. Five so minutes, yeah. yeah, five minutes. So I want to wrap up. With knowing what you guys know now, and Warren, maybe I'll start with you. Any career advice you would give to somebody who's, uh, you know, talk to yourself in high school in Burnaby when you're 14, 15, what would you say knowing that, you know, knowing what you know now? Absolutely. Like, uh, I, my biggest advice is just keep your head down, work hard, let your work show for itself. Um, you know, I, I've, I've seen too many of my colleagues or even people have high, I've hired, uh, or step through my kitchen and, and 
their ego is through the roof. They, they because of their resume or because of who they know or because of what they were taught on you know their certain way of how to make a risotto. I would say as as a young cook or someone who who wants to to come into this career, keep your head down. Yeah, just uh just really really stay humble and no matter how much you know, always have that room to grow and learn. I love that. I love that. There's always something more to learn. Absolutely. Right. Chef Evan, yeah, yeah. what do you yeah. what don't do you got into, for the young don't ones? Don't get into this for money. If you're passionate about food, like honestly, just let that carry you through. As Warren just said, keep your ego in check, keep yourself humble, you know, bring your passion. I know a lot of people that like it's just that's like what a lot of dudes get into cooking these days. It feels like a lot of people want to be rock stars. A lot of people want to be like, you know, Anthony Bourdain, like celebrity chef, da 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 da. Don't do that. Just if you like cooking, get excited about it. It's just like any other craft. It's like being an artist, man. Like you're never going to stop learning. So don't think that you're the master. Do it for the love. Do it for the culture. And do it for the passion. Do it for the art, man. Keep expanding your knowledge of cooking. Like never stop. Never stop being hungry. Never stop wanting to be better. These are my only mics, so I don't actually want to do a mic drop here, but that uh, sounds like we just did one. Boom. That's a hypothetical <laughs> mic drop if I've heard, heard of one. Yep. Evan, Warren, thank you so much for having me with you guys today, and, uh, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for uh, rocking service with us. Yeah, you, dude, you were absolutely didn't miss the beat. mercenary. <laughs> well, killed it. You. Yeah, killed it. You're, you're the man. That was great. That was great. Beautiful. Thanks, guys. It really felt great to be back doing a service, working with some pros and hanging out afterward for a great chat. I hope you enjoyed it too. If you heard anything that makes you want to get in touch, or perhaps you've got an idea for a future guest or topic for the show, please let me know. You can find me on most social media at Chefdemony. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, where you will find me under Graham McLennan. And of course, you can send me an email, and those go to graham at chefdemony.com. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of season five. It all means a lot. More episodes are coming. They will just be on a more random schedule, but you will hear them. Thanks for being with me here today. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you next time right here on Chef Demonie.